Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. Hey, welcome to Grace. My name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, And welcome to the Advent season. If you're new to Grace or if you're new to Advent, Advent is a centuries-old tradition of waiting and longing and hoping and worshiping for Jesus. Historically, centuries ago, the early church set aside the four Sundays leading up to Christmas to light candles because Jesus is the light of the world and he exposes the darkness And with each candle, there is a theme that goes with that candle. Historically, we celebrate joy and love and hope and peace. Uh, As we go to familiar Christmas texts in the Bible, Luke 1, Luke 2, Matthew chapter 1, Isaiah 9, and we trace those themes of love, joy, peace, and hope uh, as we kind of prepare our hearts for Christmas worship. Um, There's no obligation for us to celebrate Advent uh, there's no obligation uh, in um, the charter of our, um, yeah, I don't even know what I'm saying now. It's third service and I'm exhausted. Uh, there's no obligation for us to do this. This is a man-made tradition. And yet, uh, let's be honest, Christmas has a way of rushing us and rushing by us if we're not intentional with our worship. Uh, and so this is one of the many reasons that we have implemented this rhythm into our church calendar each year to, to slow down. Um, it's so easy to get caught up in the trappings of Christmas. I asked this last service uh, how many folks started getting their Christmas gifts earlier because you just weren't sure if uh, the postal service was going to be able to get it to you shipped in time. We started worrying even earlier this year uh, about all of the trappings and traditions of Christmas. And so this is our opportunity over these next four weeks uh, to really begin to be intentional as we once again approach Bethlehem's manger to worship the Christ child. Uh, We need some help. Now, we plan to do it again this year, but as Emmy shared, we're kind of taking a bit of a twist on Advent. Uh, This year, we want to focus in on some characters we believe don't often get a lot of press in the Christmas stories. This year, we want to celebrate the women of Advent. Why? Well, uh, we all came from one. Uh, That's a good starter. Uh, That was funnier in first service. Uh, No one laughed here either, but that's okay. Uh, and, uh, and honestly, some of these less, lesser-known stories and characters, uh, they, they deserve uh, some credit. They deserve some time in the limelight. This weekend, we're going to look at Elizabeth, and we're going to trace Advent joy from her story all the way to our story. As she, for the first time, came face-to-face with the baby in Mary's womb who would restore joy to the world that was broken and in tatters. Next week, we're going to look at Mary, the teenage mother of Jesus, whose love for the promised baby and love for the promise-keeping God uh, would be all that sustains her as she came face-to-face with an uninvited angel and an invitation to an upside-down invitation to cradle in her womb the hope for all mankind. And then we're going to look at Anna, and we're going to trace peace through Anna's story. Anna was the widow prophetess. After she lost her husband, she spent the rest of her days in Luke's gospel, second chapter. She spent her days in the temple waiting and watching for Jesus to come. And what we learn in Anna is that peace is not found in the cir- certain set of circumstances. Peace isn't found in the accumulation of stuff. Peace is always, always found in the presence of a person, the Prince of Peace. And then the last sermon in Advent, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, We're going to trace through Matthew's gospel, the first chapter, you know, that lineage that we always avoid and we jump over where all the names are at. Uh, We're going to hang out in Matthew's lineage in chapter 1. And we're going to trace hope through four Gentile women, Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba. Really jacked up stories. And yet all four of these Gentile women got to play a part in bringing Jesus, the Messiah, to us. 
We're going to see hope spill out of these stories as we're reminded that God is often in the business of reversing the values of the world and using the least and likeliest among us to billboard his good news across the pages of human history. You know, Advent reminds us year after year that the Savior of the world, he was pleased to mix himself up right smack dab in the middle of some pretty jacked up stories. I'm reading a book right now by a guy named Tom Fierst, and it's titled Underdogs and Outsiders, and it traces those four Gentile women through the Bible and how they fit into the lineage of Jesus. And he writes these words. He says, Advent reminds us that Jesus did not come as a competitor in the Game of Thrones. He came as a refugee child, born to an unwed teenage mother, destined to die on a Roman cross for the sins of his people. This child did not come into a perfect family filled with perfect people who did not need saving. His birth was scandalous, and he was honored more by Gentiles on the pages of Scripture than by his own people. He came into a messed up, imperfect family like yours, like mine. And he came to save us from our sins. Jesus came to save us from ourselves. He came to restore the broken world that we so spectacularly messed up. Emmy already pointed out that Elizabeth's story started off with brokenness, but really it was full of brokenness. Barrenness in the first century ancient Near East, it was a tragedy, much like it is today. But I think it carried with it a little bit more significance in the first century because children maintained the lineage of a family. Without sons... It was nearly impossible to carry on the family name and to transmit possessions from family to family. Without children in the ancient Near East first century, it was much like a death sentence. There was no heir to keep the family name alive. And yet, the gospel writer introduces us to these characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth, not as bitter people, but as righteous and blameless people. And here's a powerful truth right out of the gate this morning. Our faithfulness and our obedience to God is not dependent upon our circumstances. It's really not. For those of us who know God and believe God's promises, there's a deeper place in us that we can learn to operate out of, even with deferred hopes and dashed dreams and unanswered prayers. I think that's what Elizabeth and Zechariah want to teach us this morning. Specifically, Elizabeth, that there is a greater joy that we can get in on to. Look with me, Luke chapter 1. Let's see how these two are introduced into the story. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Verse 7, but they had no child. What's your but this morning? You know what I mean. What's your butt? What's stealing your joy this morning as we enter into another Christmas season? It might be something scary. Uh, it might be something significant, a s- seemingly insurmountable obstacle. Elizabeth and Zachariah, they want to invite us this morning as we approach Advent and as we approach Christmas, they want to invite us into experiencing a greater joy this Advent season. A joy that, frankly, is bigger than whatever it is we're hoping for, whatever it is we're longing for and waiting for and anxiously praying for. A joy that is bigger than our context. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Dustin taught that our gratitude... And living grateful lives is more about the contents instead of the context. 
context is what's happening around us. It's where we're at. It's what we're experiencing. It's all of the things that we can't control and we can't manage. And it's the same is true for our joyfulness this morning. Our joy has to be rooted in something bigger than context, but contents. And what are the contents? Uh, Very simply, Colossians 1 verse 27 reminds us that the contents are Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in us. I've said this often here at Grace Bible Church, that Christianity is not about staying in the proper boundaries of behavior. It's not about a list of rules and regulations. Christianity is about learning to live out of the life of another. It's about receiving and containing and learning by grace through faith to give expression to the very life of Jesus Christ. His life, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his gentleness, his goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sins and to come and indwell us by his Holy Spirit and to learn to give expression through our Eyes and ears and fingers and toes and unique personalities and zip codes and economic brackets and wherever you are, warts and all, God is delighted to live in you and to live his life through you. This is why Jesus would ultimately come and be born and grow up and would say in John's Gospel, the 15th chapter, these things I say to you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Don't miss this. The only way that we can live joyful lives is to be full of the joy of Jesus. Now, what things did Jesus speak to his disciples there in John's gospel, the 15th chapter? He said a lot of things in those first 10 verses, but this one is probably the most familiar. You remember in John 15, verse 4 and 5, he says, hey, abide in me. Abide in me, and I abide in you. A branch can't bear any fruit if it's not abiding in and clinging to and attached to the vine. Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine. I'm the life. I'm the source. I'm the supply. You're the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. What fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on and so forth. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus isn't even in a womb yet, and so we kind of need to go backwards a little bit. Here's the big point, though, this morning. Here's the big principle as we get into Elizabeth and Zachariah's story. Even in brokenness and barrenness, Elizabeth was going to play a role in proclaiming this good news of great joy. And the same is true for you and me. Even with deferred hopes and dashed dreams and longing and unanswered prayer, we can be a part of a greater joy playing a role. Maybe not in the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, but we can play a role in the second coming, preparing the world for the coming king who will one day come back, dry every eye, right every wrong, make every sad thing come untrue, and forever and finally put death to death. There's a greater joy here. And I want you to see it through Elizabeth and Zechariah's story. So let's see what Elizabeth and Zechariah have going for them. Look at verses 5 through 7. There's three things that they have going for them. Verse 5, we read that Zechariah was a priest of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Zechariah was a priest. That meant he was about priestly things. He was about the worship of the one true God. And Elizabeth was a daughter of Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest of the tribe of Levi. This was a godly family. Here's the principle out the gate. Don't ever discount the power of a godly family in the lives of the generations that follow them. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, whatever your parental title is, You are the worship leader in your home, the priest, the one called to point your children to treasuring and making Jesus famous. Don't ever discount the power of a godly family, even if the family that you came from wasn't that. 
These parents, they raised Zechariah and Elizabeth in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know what else they did? They probably arranged the marriage for their kids so that they would have a household that also honored God. And listen, as much as we would like to arrange the marriages for our children, we probably don't have that luxury, but we do get to pray for our kids' spouses. And um, dad, dads, be the kind of man for your daughters so that they can know what to look for. Dads, be the kind of man for your sons, modeling what it looks like to be a man of integrity and character and love God first and foremost. Never discount the power of a godly family. And then the legacy they leave behind for the tradition and for the generations that come. That's the first thing they have going for them. They come from a godly heritage, but that's not all. Look at verse 6. They also lived according to the word of God. Verse 6 says they were righteous before God. That meant their lives were molded around the standards of God's word. They weren't just hearers of the word. They were doers of the word. They took God's word seriously. They applied it, and they walked in accordance to it. But they didn't do this in order to receive anything from God. They didn't try to twist God's arm with obedience to get out of God what they wanted most. How do we know that? Because the second part of verse 6 says that they were blameless before him. This tells us that they had their hearts and their hands surrendered to God. They were blameless to him. This wasn't just about religion to Zechariah and Elizabeth. This wasn't just about coming to church. It wasn't just about uh, doing all the church activity stuff on the calendar. They had a deep and abiding faith in their God, and their hearts and their hands were truly surrendered to God, as was their money and their resources and their home and their sexuality and their hopes and their aspirations and their dreams. They were doing everything right before God. And yet, despite their righteous and blameless lives, they remained barren childless, unable to bear children. And in case you missed it, verse 7 says that they were well advanced in years. And in their blameless, righteous living, they had to experience waiting on God. They'd waited so long for God to come through. Do you know what that's like? Anybody out there still waiting on God for something specific in your life, wondering if God's forgotten you? If he's misplaced the playbook, like where are you, God? Let me encourage you folks that when it seems like God is not listening and your prayers are going unanswered, it's not because God is asleep on the job. Often before God works on our problems, he wants to work on us. Often before God works on our problems, he wants to work on us. Did you know that it took between 50 and 75 years for Noah to build the ark before the rains ever fell? God was working on him. You know, Abraham had to wait, I don't know, 25 years. If I'm wrong, students tell me later. 25 years for Isaac to come, the promised child. David, 20-ish years he had to wait after being anointed the king of Israel before he actually took the throne. God was working on the people before he moved into working on their problems. God does and he can speak in the waiting as we listen for him and long for him to move. So this, this is why I think it's important for us to look at some of the ways that God speaks to us in the waiting. Listen, I know Elizabeth is the hero of the story. We're going to get to her, I promise you. Second part of this is just such a significant passage, but we need to follow Zechariah into the temple to look at his work and his worship because God speaks to us while we're waiting, and there's a couple of principles here that I think God wants us to see. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, Zechariah gets the, gets the call from the bullpen. I don't know if that's the right way to do that. Uh, but he gets the call from the bullpen, and he's cast lots, and he gets to go into the temple. In, did I get that right? I don't know, AJ. You got to let me know later. Okay, good. He gets the call to go into the temple to offer the incense prayer to the Lord. Now, there's so much rich history here with the priesthood. We don't have time to go into it. Suffice to say that this was a -a once-in-a-lifetime event for Zechariah. Oh, and when you cast lots, it's kind of like rolling the dice. Proverbs 16.33 reminds us, though, that uh, we roll the dice, but the outcome belongs to the Lord. God was up to something here in Zechariah's life. So here he is. 
He's in the temple. He's mixing up the incense because God liked to smell our prayers. God likes to smell our prayers as a fragrant aroma to him. Sometimes we stink. Anyway, that's another sermon for another time. So he's in the Holy of Holies, right? He's in the most holy place. He's mixing up the incense. He's both honored to be there, but probably slightly frightened because we're talking about the very presence of God. And while he is there, what happens? The angel shows up. Look at verse 11. And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Verse 12, what's his response? And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Uh, That's usually what happens uh, before Jesus comes back uh, and dies and sends his spirit. When people uh, enter into the presence of angels, right, they're afraid. The next chapter, when angel Gabriel comes to Mary, what's her response? She's frightened. What about the shepherds out shepherding their flock by night? And the angel, uh, remember that angel's name was Harold? I think that's Dustin named him because he heralded the good news. I don't know if that's his real name. It's not in the Greek, okay? But the point, I don't even, this isn't even a point you need for this message. Uh, But they were afraid when the angels showed up. Let me get back to the point. So how does God speak to us in the waiting? How does God speak to us when we are longing and have deferred hopes and dashed dreams and unanswered prayers? Because we all know it usually isn't an angel in our prayer closets, right? Uh, First, I want you to see that God did not wait until Zechariah believed, but he did respond to the man's faithfulness, and he moved circumstances that only God can move. The lots were cast, but God moved Zechariah into the place he needed to be so he could hear from heaven. God responds to our faithfulness. And this means Zechariah was in the place he needed to be in order to be put into the place God wanted him to be. It begs an interesting question. As you're still waiting for God, are you still doing the things you're supposed to be doing? Are you still showing up to the places you're supposed to be showing up? In other words, are you still obeying while you're praying? If not, it's a... It's a good first step in the right direction. God moved in Zechariah's faithfulness. But there's something else that we see here in verse 13. God sent a messenger to deliberately reveal that he and Elizabeth were to be blessed. This is beautiful. They encountered a God who knew the longing of their hearts, and God spoke to them there. Look at verse 13 and 14. Don't be afraid, he says to Zechariah, verse 12. Verse 13, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. This is the first time joy shows up in the story. And many will rejoice, the verb form of joy. Many will rejoice at his birth, at his coming, at his ministry. Zechariah never stopped praying, folks. He knew biology was no longer on his side, right? That ship had sailed. They were up there in age. They knew biology had moved on from them. But here's also what Zechariah did know. He knew the character of his God and he knew history. You remember Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons, but it started out with one, and it took a long time for him to show up. But God opened Sarah's womb. Zechariah knew history. You, you remember Manoah? Manoah was the, was the mother of Samson, the book of Judges. Her womb was broken, and God filled it. You remember Hannah? My favorite parts of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. Hannah was the mother of Samuel, and her womb was broken too. And yet God filled it with Samuel, the very last judge of Israel, the very first uh, prophet of God, the one who laid his hands on David and established him as king. See, Zechariah knew biology had moved on, but he also knew the character of God and he knew history. And that was enough for him to keep praying to this God who knew the longing of his heart. You know what Zechariah's name means? Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. God remembers every prayer you've ever prayed that seems to go unheard or unanswered. God remembers, and he knows the longings of your heart. So how how else does God speak to us? And this, this is probably one of the keys to the story. Look at verse 16. God answered the heart's cry of this mom and dad while also answering even bigger ones. Verse 16, 
we read this. And he, speaking of John the baptizer, the son who Elizabeth and Zechariah would have, and he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Hear me now. Oftentimes the blessing of God to us is not for us only. Oftentimes the blessing of God to us is not just for us, but it is to put us into a place where we can be in a posture to receive the blessing of God so that it can come through us. God was answering the prayer of a mom and a dad who had a hole in the hearts and a hole in their home. But God was about bringing more joy than just filling the empty home. God had a purpose for John's life, John the baptizer, which was so much bigger than just answering the desires and longings of this mama's heart. Yeah, God filled that home, and we praise God for that. And God still does that today. Y'all know some of my stories. Sarah Beth and I, we've struggled with infertility our whole lives. We've got four babies in heaven. And yet God has opened the door through adoption to fill our home, and we're grateful for that. But we have seen the story of adoption play out through our lives in such a miraculous and powerful way to even bring people to faith. Here's the point that I want to make. God was answering the prayers of a mom and dad while at the same time inaugurating his rescue plan for the rest of humanity. This reminds me of a very specific principle that often helps me keep things in perspective. Um, we see roadkill. God sees a hungry vulture. God's plan is myriad. He's always working on a million different things at the same time. And it's undiscernible to us. Why? Because we often are only looking at the one thing God's doing in our lives. And yet, God is not only spinning the cosmos and listening to every one of the prayers of his children around the globe and also keeping the fluid in your eyeballs right now. Did you know you have fluid in your eyeballs? You don't know unless you don't have it working right, right? God has got so many things he's doing right now. We see roadkill, God sees a hungry vulture. And so the next time God is up to something blessing you, begin to say, Holy Spirit, is this to me or through me? Is this to me or through me? Or, or both. God, what do you want to do through this thing that you're bringing into our lives? Okay, so God speaks to us in the waiting in a myriad different ways. Where's joy? Right? We're talking about Advent joy. Where is joy? Well, joy shows up for the first time in verse 14. We saw it just a minute ago. The angel Gabriel says to Zechariah, hey, it's okay. Your prayer's been heard. Elizabeth's going to have a baby. You will have joy and gladness, verse 14, and many will rejoice at his birth. You will have joy and gladness. Why will many rejoice at his birth? Well, verse 15, he'll be great before the Lord. Verse 16, many will turn their hearts to the Lord. Verse 17, and here's the kicker, because God's going to use him, John, to prepare the way for one who is greater than him. He's going to be the forerunner for Messiah, the Savior, King. And so at first glance, this joy and gladness of verse 14, it seems rooted in the baby in Elizabeth's womb, but the joy is greater, not because of the fruitfulness of Elizabeth's womb, but because of the fruitfulness of John's ministry that was about to take place. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that upon hearing all of this in the temple, Zechariah looks at the angel Gabriel and he says what? He says, um, I'm really excited about this. You're answering our prayers. I'm cool with the redemption part, but have you looked at me and Elizabeth lately, God? Like, I don't think our bodies can do what it is you have in mind, Angel Gabriel. That's Cameron's nearly inspired version of the translation. Essentially, he said, I, I don't see this working. <laughs> and what is the angel's response? Look at verse 19. This is great. Uh, verse 19. I'm Gabriel. Do you know who I am? And do you know where I came from? That's also Cameron reading between... The white spaces. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you the good news. And behold, 
You didn't believe me. So you will be silent and mute until these things take place because you did not believe my words. And Elizabeth said, praise hallelujah. Can you imagine that, ladies? Your husband can't talk for the next, I don't know, how long does it take to make a baby? Other mamas carried our babies. I don't know how it works. Nine months. Okay, thank you. Nine months of silence. Praise the Lord. Don't put that on your wish lists, ladies. Don't do it. Don't do it. And that's exactly what happens, right? Zechariah, he's mute. He's struck dumb. He can't talk. Why? Because he did not believe God. He did not take God at his word. The author's doing something specific. He's paralleling these two stories. Zechariah's unbelief is matched up to Mary's belief. But that's a different sermon for a different time. So Zechariah gets done with his priestly service, service 21 to 23. He comes out. He goes back home. Verse 24, what do we read? After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Wow, wow. That's what we're supposed to read there. That was funny, your first service too. Y'all aren't awake. Ultimately, verse 24 means through the natural biological means, they conceived a baby. You know, no birds and bees for me this morning. It's not going to happen. But what did happen is after Elizabeth got pregnant, we read in verse 24 and 25 that she isolated herself. She secluded herself. She kind of went into isolation. Verse 24, after these days, Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, and he took away my reproach among people. Now, scholars aren't really sure why Elizabeth hid herself. Some believe that she spent so long praying for the baby that she had to make up for it in praising God for the baby. Uh, But most scholars believe that her seclusion was necessary to set up the next part of the story. Her in isolation made it easy for Mary to come and to spend time with her and for this cataclysmic event to take place when Mary and Elizabeth meet one another, when baby John meets baby Jesus in the womb. So what happens next? Well, we're not going to read the part of Angel Gabriel going to Mary. That's Dustin's job next week. I don't want to steal his thunder. But one thing Gabriel does say to Mary, the mother of Jesus, is, hey, even your cousin Elizabeth in her old age, she's pregnant too. Go see if you want to. Nothing is impossible with our God. And so what does Mary do? And she gets on her camel and she hightails it over to Elizabeth's house. Now, don't believe that this is like she got on a camel and she went down the street and around the corner. We're talking like close to 80, 90, possibly 100 miles in 100 degree heat for community. What are we doing for community? I'll let that linger for a second. 100 miles, 100 degree heat. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons, but I believe Mary believed God. But she also, she also needed some help believing. I believe, help me with my unbelief, said the father who had the son in that gospel account that I can't remember right now. So Mary comes, right? She goes with haste. We read it in verse 39. Read with me, verse 39. And Mary, in those days, Mary arose and she went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. We don't know which town. We just know the region from where she was at. That's why I said 80, 90 miles. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth was setting up the nursery and still praising God that her husband couldn't talk. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, oh, this is good. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, verse 41, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. There is so much going on here. But for starters, here, here is where Elizabeth's joy is fulfilled. We saw it hinted at back in 14. But it was bigger than just the fruitfulness of her womb. It was so much bigger Because God was up to something bigger than just one family and one womb and one baby. No, the bigger joy is not about the fruitfulness of one womb. It was about the fruitfulness of John's obedience and his ministry. Because right here, we get to see Elizabeth step in to being a part of the first advent. 
She gets to be a part of her son inaugurating his ministry of pointing people to Jesus. She gets to play a minor role in the advent, the coming of redemption. And she couldn't contain her joy. And let me just let the cat out of the bag. You and I, we get to play a role in preparing the world, not for the first advent, but for the second advent, for the coming of the king who will defeat death and dry every eye. Are we playing our role? Are we staying in our lane? More on that in just a few. Let me tell you why this event was so significant then and why it's so significant for us right now. First, we read that when Elizabeth, or when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, we're told that the baby leapt in her womb. And upon the baby leaping in her womb, what happened? It says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit first. I think John the baby was. Why? Because it fulfills what the angel Gabriel was talking about back in verse 15, a culmination of that prophetic word, that this baby would be filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. So John gets filled with the Spirit. And as a result, his mama gets filled with the Spirit. And then, through the power of the Spirit, what happened? The baby leapt. Now, moms, those of you who had babies, you know what it's like for a baby to kick in your belly, right? That, that wasn't this. This baby leapt. This baby responded to what was happening in the room. I dare say that in this moment, through the power of the Spirit, the baby in Elizabeth's womb communicated the significance of this moment. Don't miss this, church. This is John the baptizer. The forerunner to Jesus, the one who was prophesied would come in the spirit of Elijah, who would go and prepare the way for the coming Lord. Here is John beginning his ministry of pointing people to Jesus, and he's doing it from the womb. You want a pro-life verse? It's right here. We're not political here. If you don't believe us, go back to 2020, October, November, see our series as we preach through the gospel and politics. We're not, we're not political. We are unashamedly pro-life, and that means we are unashamedly pro-women and pro-families in crisis. But I need you to see something very specific about this moment right here. The first person in history to recognize Jesus the Messiah, the Savior King, was a baby in the womb. This was John inaugurating his ministry as the forerunner for Messiah and doing it as an unborn child in the womb. I cannot think of a stronger argument for the personhood of people in the womb. And the theological significance of this moment, it's unparalleled. These two women coming together, the elder and the younger. The old covenant promises and the new covenant fulfillment the prophet and the Lord, John and Jesus, these mama's bellies bumped and worship was ignited. Baby John, in utero, saying, there he is, there's Jesus, let's get this party started. Worship erupted six months in utero, and John is leading worship. And I don't know what John was doing. I don't know if he was preaching, I don't know if he was prophesying, I don't know if he was celebrating, I don't know if he was worshiping, dancing, but what I do know is that, church, this is the right response to Jesus. Worship. This is the right response to Jesus. Praise and proclamation. The baby's praising. Elizabeth is about to proclaim the good news. Declaring what is true. Extolling the virtue of Mary and the goodness of God. Speaking life to Mary. And I heard this from Alistair Begg this week listening to him preach on this text. He said, do you know what Elizabeth does here? He says, by the Spirit's power, she is enabled to translate her baby's tumbling into theology. And this is the result of a divine revelation. Praise and proclamation at a play date, y'all. Now, we might sit back and say... You know, Cam, that's a really nice story. I see the parallels between John and Jesus. Really nice angle on the pro-life sentiment, Pastor Cam. Well done. Nice story. If that's our attitude towards this text, we miss the power of what's happening here. 
Here's why. Con- consider with me when this was happening in the history of Israel. don't know if you're familiar with the history of Israel at this point in time. But this was on the heels of 400 years of prophetic silence. We call it the intertestamental period. From when Malachi, the very last prophet of the Old Testament, all the way till Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, 400 years of absolute and utter silence from heaven. No word from God. No prophetic utterance, no angelic announcement, no messages from on high, nothing but silence. This was a very significant moment for Israel and for the world. Let me show you something. You don't need to turn here. But Malachi chapter 4, the very last prophet, the last book in the Old Testament, chapter 4 verse 2. Let me read this to you really quickly. You can turn there if you want. You don't need to. This is what Malachi said, chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, this is God speaking through Malachi. For you who fear my name, he's not talking about a slavish kind of fear, as a criminal is afraid of, of, of law enforcement. No, he's, he's talking about a reverence and an honor to the holiness and majesty of God. To those who reverence my name, who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. The son of righteousness wasn't a thing, it was a person. This is speaking of Messiah, the coming king, Jesus Christ the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. End of verse 2. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You making the connection? You know, certain times of the year, shepherds would take those calves and put them in stalls because of the inclement weather. And I don't know how long those calves stayed locked up, but can you imagine a baby calf getting out of a stall for any period of time? What's their response going to be to their freedom? They're going to leap. They're going to bound. They're going to jump. They're going to celebrate. They're going to roll around because they are free from the stall. This word leaping, it's the same word used for John in his mother's womb. Why? Because John knew that he had entered into the presence of the son of righteousness and he was leaping and celebrating because healing was coming not just to Israel but to all of mankind. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy for unto you in the city of David is born a Savior. The people of God They knew they hadn't heard from God in 400 years, so they were watching and waiting and listening for any sign. This is the theological significance of this moment. This is God answering all of the prayers. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And what was Elizabeth's response to this leaping, bumping, bouncing, celebratory worship from the womb? Verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry. Most commentators believe that she gave to prophetic utterance. This is the first prophetic word for 400 years. And you know what it proclaimed? The goodness of God coming. The Messiah arriving. The blessedness of the womb of Mary Elizabeth was the first to rejoice with words, to proclaim with passion the good news of great joy. And can you hear the humility in her? Why, verse 43, why should it be granted to me to stand in the presence of the mother of my Lord? Why should she come to me? Humility and awe. Because she's simply in the presence of Jesus, the coming king. How much greater should our awe be those of us who are indwelt by the Son of Righteousness Himself, the Savior King through the indwelling Spirit who gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Made us partakers of the divine nature. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Who leads us in triumph and victory. Second Corinthians. Something, 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 something. I don't remember that one. (laughs) 
How much greater should our awe and humility be that the sovereign of the universe who condescended and came low to become a slave, to die on a cross so that we might be saved and set free from the penalty and power of sin and who now comes to live inside of us so that he might give expression through us to a world around us shrouded in darkness. Don't miss this, Grace. Elizabeth and the babe in her womb, they were the first to rejoice at the coming of King Jesus. They didn't know what it would all mean for them, for Israel, for the rest of the world. All that they knew is that Jesus had come and they rejoiced and their joy in the coming king eclipsed all the previous joys they'd experienced up to that point. And this greater joy even eclipsed all of the sorrows that they had experienced up until this point. Here's the great secret, church, of living in a broken and fallen world that is chock full of death and decay. The stain of sin is everywhere. You can't go through your social media feed and not be brought to tears because of decay and depravity and selfishness. In the world in which we live. And yet here's the great invitation of Elizabeth this morning. It's, hey, come and get in on this greater joy of proclaiming the king who came and is coming again. Jesus says the only way that you're going to have full joy, live joyful lives, is that my joy would be in you. Church, this is why we have to take Christmas worship serious. We can't just mosey up to the manger like we do every year. This is serious worship, church. Manger hope grew up to be resurrection hope, who grew up to be indwelling hope so that he could be hope through us to the world around us where you live, work, learn, and play, and you're surrounded by people who don't have hope or joy or love or peace, or if they do, it's a counterfeit and a knockoff that the world's offering and masquerading as the real thing, and it's not. We have a great privilege and a great opportunity to be heralds this Christmas season. proclaim the good news that Jesus has come and is coming again. What is joy? Let's land this plane. We didn't even define joy. It's not happiness. Happiness is an emotion and it rises and falls based on how we're feeling and how we're doing. Happiness is tied to such fragile things that we are wildly out of control to manage. A mentor of mine reminds me, Cameron, if you ever place your joy into something that death can take from you, you will always be disappointed. No, joy is much deeper reality. Here's my definition of joy. You might have one. Uh, This is mine. You're welcome to steal it. Joy is the resolute assurance and confidence in the character of God and his promises. Joy is an absolute rock-solid conviction and confidence in the character of our God and his promises. And the only way we're going to know his promises is if we spend time in his word, scouring them and learning them and repeating them and rehearsing them and telling them to one another because we are a forgetful people prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Praise God. He doesn't leave us, nor forsakes us. Look how Elizabeth ends her proclamation to Mary. Verse 45. And blessed is she who believed. We call that faith. Don't you see the process here? Mary believed God. And in belief, God blessed Mary. And out of that blessing, Mary praised God. God. We're not going to get into Mary's Magnificat, verse 36 to 46. She proclaims proclaims praises to God for what he has done. She believed, God blessed. 
She worshiped. Mary believed God through the angel Gabriel. Elizabeth rejoiced in the coming of the king, but we stand on the other side of history rejoicing that he came. He conquered sin, death, and the grave, and he rose again, and he went to heaven, and he sent his spirit to empower us and to join us to the very life of the Son of God so that we could now give expression to the very Son of God in every situation, circumstance, and scenario we find ourselves. And now, in Christ, hear me, we have everything we need to live joyfully to live rejoicing knowing that he came and he's coming again here's our invitation to you this morning as we finish this conversation on advent joy would you be willing to ask god what's the greater joy in this moment what's the greater joy that you might have for me in this moment to be about my father's business god you've blessed me in many ways how might the blessing be both to me and through me in this season of Advent that we enter into? The weary world rejoices. The weary world needs to rejoice. Let's give them a reason to rejoice. Pray with me. Father, we confess that we need you to see any of this come to pass. For us to be a people who both believe you adamantly and live out in such a way, God, that we're not tossed to and fro by the circumstances around us. We need you to remind us, God, that you are good, that you are glorious, that you are worth waiting for. God, help us to be reminded this week that Elizabeth in her deferred hopes and dashed dreams and anxious longing, knew God that there was a greater joy that was out there. And for those of us in this room who don't know how to get there, God, help us to come alongside of them. Help us to be extensions and agents of joyfulness for one another. And some of us have lost our song and we don't know how to rejoice. Thank you for the church, the capital C church, She's not perfect, Lord, but you promised to perfect her. And you're doing that work in and through us, your body, your people, committed to the good of our cities and to your glory. Come, let us adore him this Advent season. The Christ child in the manger. We worship you, Jesus. Thank you for coming. Thank you that you promised to come again. Maranatha, come. Lord Jesus, and if you tarry, give us eyes to see people the way that you see them. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.